When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child, we really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. So hey guys, when Lorenzo and I first sat down to think through which stories we might tell on a podcast, there was one story in particular that stood out. And it stood out for um, a couple of different reasons, but the most important one is that it sort of encapsulated everything we believe to be true about stories and storytelling. Uh, And that is that number one, your story really does matter. And number two, telling your story can influence change. And lastly, listening to somebody's story is equally important as telling your story. What you're gonna hear um, over the next two episodes is a fun thing and I love it. And we've broken it into two parts because it kind of turned into a long conversation. So the first conversation that you're gonna hear is between me and my um, friend Diego Bernal. And I, this one is kind of like the big picture story. It's a, it's the you know 20,000 foot view of, of what his conversations have been like with educators across San Antonio. I think you're really gonna enjoy the conversation and certainly it's going to set up the more detailed conversation that will be presented in the next episode. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about San Antonio in terms of um, everybody, I feel like everyone is sort of watching what San Antonio is doing right yeah. now mm-hmm. in the education landscape. Am I wrong? Right? Sort of right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's interesting. So one of the really challenging things about Texas is that it's so diverse, Right, even among its big cities, they're very, very different from one another. Austin, San Antonio, Houston, Dallas—you know—you can throw in El Paso and the Valley, Lubbock. I mean, they're they're all really different, but 
people look at San Antonio one because they feel like San Antonio is kind of like the crystal ball for what the future of Texas and the United States is going to be in terms of demographics, younger, right. browner, blacker, more diverse, more international, more urban. So there's that. And then we have 17 school districts in our city, which Craziness. is completely insane. And if you want to go countywide, I think we're closer to 22. And we're also ground zero for a lot of the school choice conversation, right? Charter schools and to some degree ESAs and vouchers. I don't know if it's conversation or combat, but. Well, it's both, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's both. And so in that way, and, and also in terms of education policy, education fights, education advocacy, we've always been at the tip of the spear. We're the home of, uh, Maldef, mm-hmm. which, which brought a lot of those, um, school finance cases, the Edgewood cases, um, where the birthplace of the Rodriguez case that went to the U.S. Supreme yeah. Court. You know, we have a, a, a sort of bevy of both civil rights legal organizations and civil rights educational resource or research organizations like IDRA. So in that way, we've all, that's always been part of our DNA. So yes, people look at us and we're supposed to know what we're doing and talking about. And right. sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Yes. So that's another reason to have the podcast. Yeah. Because I do feel like, although I did the work of an ed- a public educator, this is now my 19th year in SCISD, San Antonio ISD, and I still am learning what? Like, who's what? Yeah. What's communities and schools? They've been here how long? Wait, where? what, what am I supposed to be doing right now? City Education Partners is doing what? Mm-hmm. Like, I still, and I, I'm in the mix, and I, but it's like I said earlier, when you are doing, when you're in your schoolhouse, you're thinking about your schoolhouse. You're not necessarily thinking about the entire city and the impact that we're having on the trend that's coming or the wave we're riding, right? And in some ways, though, in some ways, you're making the point as to why we shouldn't have so many school districts. And I'm not, I'm not assigning that that perspective to you. I'm just saying that we talk about being siloed. We talk about being in our own lane. We talk about sort of being uh, either ambivalent or oblivious to things happening around us. And then if we have these artificial lines that create these divisions, that's more likely to happen. Yes. I, Lorenzo and I talked, I think, a, a little bit about it, about the indoctrination that happens wherever you end up. Like you get out of school and you get assigned a place to be because you need a teaching job. And then where you are, you are indoctrinated. It's like you're entering into this religion of this is how we do it. And anybody who's not subscribing to the way we do it is the devil. And you should stay far away from that line of thinking. I imagine a bunch of teachers right now with (laughs) glasses of wine in their own hands (laughs) lifting them up right now after that sentence. I'm just... I, it's only a realization. Preach, like I'm, sister. I'm realizing it now. Where I'm like, wait a minute. There are so many amazing things happening, and we're we're at the cusp of being able to impact a lot of really smart change. But if you don't know that it's happening, then well, you don't know what's happening. And also because of that system, it make it makes it harder to communicate and share and proliferate. Right. So yeah. m- more recently, for example, SEISD, I think, has been very, very aggressive in innovating, very, very aggressive in trying new things, very aggressive in trying to to do right by all the kids in their spectrum. Right. They still have a ways to go, but they're really, really trying. And I, I appreciate that. And people forget, despite those gains, that they're one of 17. 
And so if they're, if they're discovering things at work, how likely is it that those things make their way to the other school districts that need to right. do it? I, again, I'm not, I don't want to hammer the consolidation nail too hard. I'm just saying that to your point, we're in an environment where structurally, not just because you're busy, not just because you're doing your job, not just because you're focusing on your own campus, your own classroom. Structurally, it's designed to keep cooperation, collaboration, and the proliferation of good ideas to a minimum. Right. And our kids are paying the price for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then they, if they go when they leave the school system and they enter into the workforce or into the the college industry, then they're like, what? You had what? I don't. Yeah. Why didn't we? I never yeah. knew. That's totally I my experience. Right? For sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I was I was lucky enough to to go to University of Michigan for undergrad. But my very first day there, I met this kid. I can't remember his name. He's from Long Island. Remember that? And because I was thinking about iced tea. <laughs> and, and he was explaining to me, maybe bragging, that he was on his first day at the University of Michigan. He was a sophomore. I said, mm-hmm. well, how can that be? He said, well, all of my whole senior year, I took AP courses. And so I've accumulated enough AP credits to, to be, be a sophomore. To be a sophomore. Um, and this is before like dual credit high schools. This is back in 1995, yeah. right? But I remember thinking at Jefferson, where I went, they had one AP course. And I think that they allowed people to sit for one other exam. But that was it. So I'm thinking to myself, how is it that people in my senior class – Shout out class of 95. How is it that on paper they could compete with students from his school? It has nothing to do with how smart they are, nothing to do with their abilities or um, how hard they work or their work ethic or even how well written their, their personal statements were. But structurally, there's no way on paper that they could compete because his school offered well, 30 classes that right. didn't exist at our school. And you didn't know they didn't exist. I didn't know. You didn't know. You didn't know until you got there. Right. And then what made it worse is that when you finally get to, you know, know, sociology 101 with 300 other students in there, and, you know, I'm freaked out thinking, oh, these people are so smart. It's the best of the best. What am I doing here? I'm an imposter. They made a mistake. All those things that we say to ourselves. I mean, I didn't have a, I didn't kill it academically, but after my second or third week, I realized that those folks weren't any smarter than my classmates at Jefferson. Right. I went to Brackenridge for my, freshman year and got kicked out, but they weren't any smarter than my Brackenridge classmates. They weren't any smarter than my Tafoya middle school classmates. Lots of love for Brack, though. So all of my friends went to Brack, and they all graduated from Brack. So I've got, I'm a little purple, blue and red hybrid. Nice. Yeah. Nice. You know, when I went to college, I I stayed in San Antonio, so I didn't have that exact same experience. A lot of my college classmates were also from San Antonio. So it wasn't until... I left college and I started thinking about where I wanted to get a job. And honestly, I wanted to just get a job. Mm -hmm. But my ideal place to be was going to be San Antonio ISD because that's where I lived growing up and it's where I went to school. Mm -hmm. I went to Horseman um, and James Madison Elementary. And so I really, and it's where my grandparents were. It's very nostalgic for me to go back. But when I started telling people that I was going to go teach in SAISD, that that's where I really wanted to be. But I would take any job, but where I really wanted yeah. to be was SAISD. They, people were like, really? But you could, 
I could do so much more. You could, you know, you could, you could teach in a wealthier school district. Yeah. It would be so much easier. And at, and beyond where I wanted to teach, people also asked me, like, are you sure you want to be a teacher? I mean, what you, you're so, you, you have the whole world is open to you. You could be, you could be anything you want to be. Right. Are you sure you want to be a teacher? And so even, and I also graduated in 95. So even that long ago, people were already had this mindset of, mm-hmm those who can do and those who can't teach yeah it's like announcing to your parents that you want to be a social worker instead of a <laughs> lawyer or doctor like, really really is that what you really want but you're so hmm. smart yeah that's <laughs> terrible yeah but good luck and and i think the hard part about that again is that you know those students need the very best instruction that they can get their hands on well, i always tell people well how the hell do you think they became lawyers and doctors yeah because they had a teacher yeah. that taught them how to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think in all of these policy conversations, um, just like in your circumstance, the the children themselves get lost. Yeah. In the conversation about it, and I I think that's what bothers me the most. And I, we try to keep that front and center. And in our office, we say, you know, if they can't feel it at home, it doesn't count. And we're thinking about all the students who go to the schools that I represent and that I went to. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I represent all the schools I went to. So, um. It's a challenge, but I think I, I I wish the rest of the legislature saw it that way. If they did, this would be a lot easier. Bring them with you. Yeah, that's not, you know. Yeah. They're invited. They should come. Yeah. But also, you know, just being honest, they need to visit their own schools. Right. I mean, I'm visiting the ones in my district. We all have our own districts. Go. But what I say is don't go for like flag day. They don't go for the pep rally. Don't go for the... Go on a Tuesday in October. Set it up and go when no one knows, no right. one else knows you're coming except you and the educators so you can sit and talk with them. Um, some of the best conversations I've had is when a principal, especially on my second round, if they know what I'm up to and they yeah. saw the report and they they know that it comes from a good place, they'll invite me to their staff meetings, you know, seven in the morning. Um, but you, when you're sitting there in a round table with a bunch of people, Man, you get incredible information, real honesty. And we use that to inform the policy we propose. So do you feel like your conversations, they have a different tone that second visit? Yeah. Like- so so that's why I, I think in about a month, we're going to release an updated version of the study. It won't, I call it a study. It's really just a report. It won't be that different. It'll be 80% the same. But we've learned to ask, and I say we, it's me. I always go by myself, but we've learned to ask different questions or we asked, like, I'll give you an example. So before I asked, is pre-K important? And that was it. And, you know, of course, universally it was yes. Is yes. But this time I said, can you tell me the difference between no pre-K, half day pre-K and full day high quality pre-K? And that's a much more right. in-depth conversation. And it turns out that full day high quality pre-k is as close to an equalizer you're going to find it's not a silver bullet it's like a silver arrow or a silver dart but i wasn't asking that question before the first time i was asking about the the kind of access that people had to technology we talked about that at your school right this time around i'd ask a question like when first i would ask does your school give homework because some don't and i understand why they don't um one school explained to me that all they did was eliminate homework and everyone's GPA went up, but their test score stayed the same. Hmm. So homework was just creating a way for people to get zeros and not get stuff done yeah. because they didn't have time or a room or a place to study at home. It's, I'm not a huge proponent. Yeah, I, I'm just saying. 
in the lower grades. In in that instance, it made sense to me. Right. So the question was, does your school give homework? Yes or no? Okay, fine. Let's say they say yes. Then the question was, when you give homework, does your school assume that students do or don't have access to the internet? And so in that way, it wasn't what version of Windows do your computers currently run, but what kind of assignments and expectations do you have when you're giving these assignments, when you're giving, right, when yeah. you're giving a workout? And what's interesting, though, is that if you, if you take a feeder pattern and one feeder pattern, they assume there's no access to the Internet, and most of the time they're right, that's years and years and years of work and assignments and expectations that you know, yeah. where things aren't happening. You compare that to another feeder pattern where there's an assumption that they do have Internet, and they often do, and so there's all of that work and assignment and project and expectation. And so at the end of, let's say, a 12-year academic career, you you couldn't convince me that those two kids are in the same place. No. You know what I mean? Yes. So, so to me, that's what the digital divide looks like. It not only, it's not about access as much as it is an adjustment that the educators have to make in the work they give, in the projects they assign, and the expectations that they have. And, and after, you know, 10 years, 12 years, that shows up. You're reminding me of another conversation that we had about so much of what's causing an academic performance gap is not necessarily what you can solve in school. So there's bigger community city pieces that are hugely impacting what we're able to do in school. And the d digital divide is a perfect example because I live in I live, I love my neighborhood, but we, our internet sucks. <laughs> it sucks so bad. Yeah. And it's funny because we all know that when we reach a certain intersection, that's it. We're in the black hole now. Like it's not going to happen. Right. Or when it does, it's going to be spotty. And so um, my son, Jonathan and Elijah, they both have homework that is almost entirely in Google Classroom and you know where we I mean we have access to the internet it's not that big of a deal but right. it is frustrating sometimes when they forget that they have something due and then they're on like Jonathan's on the, the desktop and Elijah's got his laptop open and my daughter Elise is streaming some random YouTube cartoon that right. she wants to watch and somebody else is watching something that they DVR'd and I'm like none of it's gonna work guys because the internet infrastructure in our neighborhood is still not there. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 totally true. I was thinking about a situation where so I haven't talked about this publicly yet, so hopefully it'll be done by the time you air this. <laughs> and I should have known this, right? But I just discovered that for older housing projects that were built before there were HVAC systems, mm -hmm. those folks are given apartment units without AC. And they're not provided with a window or a wall unit. No. They're left to fend for themselves. I'm working on this. I'm, I mean, locally, I've got a solution. Not only and then, that, there, there are limited outlets in their complex. Right, right. This I know because I've been on home visits yeah. and it's like you're you're either sweltering or you're freezing cold. Right. So so, so how kids are supposed to get homework done there? I mean, that, and, that, happen. and that has nothing to do with the students' abilities or their desire to do work or their drive. Right. Um, but it's, it's something that if you were to take the GPAs of kids who live in those areas, especially at a school that gives homework, oh God, right? It's, it's a mess. So, um, right now I'm working with the city to create a program to make sure that every unit, by the way, there's over 800 units in the city that come without AC. We're working to make sure they all get AC. And then we go sort of longer. And then, of course, when I go back to the legislature in January, 
I, I doubt this will go over well, but we're going to try to make sure that in the future, if there's a housing authority that gives people uh, or awards people apartments, that there's AC. there's AC and heat. I mean, the fact that That's we do awesome. that in this in this state is crazy to me. It's just too hot. It's shameful. Yeah, it's hot. It's uncomfortable. We had a hundred. We had a hundred and six degree. Yeah, it's, it's day gross. this summer. It's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, no one can function like that. Yeah. You know, Maslow's basic needs. If you are not fed, if you are not safe, if you're not comfortable, you can't get to anything else. You just, you can't get to the rest of anything. And, you know, that's actually one of my biggest frustrations in the legislature is that there's not an acknowledgement or recognition that at this point in the way that we measure poverty, let's go back to the mid-80s. In the mid-80s, in the way we measured poverty, poor kids, free and reduced lunch, it's about 25, 28%. Now it's over 61%. The average kid is on free and reduced lunch and is economically disadvantaged. The way that we fund and approach public schools has to acknowledge that fact. Yeah. And we haven't and we won't. And that's my, if there's a big meta fight, that's it, right? The yeah. big fight is getting the state to acknowledge and then adjust and then fund, strategically funding, not just big checks strategically fund schools and students in a way that acknowledges that fact and recognizes the hurdle they have to climb at the same time being fully aware that those kids are just as smart as everybody else. They are. And I said this last time, people would ask me what it was like to work with disadvantaged students, which always irritated me because Mm -hmm. I would, in some ways they're so much more advantaged because they have, they have, creativity and they have perseverance yeah. and they have like they have the skills that they've dealt with failure so they know that I'm an overcomer I can get through this yeah they're We're, resilient they're resilient yeah. and they so it always frustrated me to hear people say oh that's a disadvantaged community no 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 the, their advantages aren't the same they have a different set of advantage than someone else might based on economics right, right. but it's not it always frustrated me. I'm sorry. Right. I don't know why I had to say that, but I no, needed be, to say because it. No, because there's no, we don't reward it. We don't acknowledge it. And we don't, there isn't an institutional way where we tell them that there's value in those experiences, right? That that it's a tee up for, it can be a tee up for success. Totally. Um, we don't treat it like that. And so I, there was one teacher, oh, I forgot the campus. Even if I remembered, I couldn't say it out loud, but there was one teacher who, who explained to me that he would talk to, oh, I remember now, he, he was a principal who talked to his kids about, he, he said that it was a dual language program, but it was school communication and street communication. And that they, he tried That's to, awesome. yeah, and he, he tried to explain to them like how much better off they were that they could code switch back and forth. But he tried to get Absolutely. them to understand, this is the way we talk when we're in the streets. This is the way we talk when we're at school. It's, there's value there, but it's not viable unless you know how to go back and forth. And they, the whole school had doubled down on this idea that they could speak two languages. I mean, it wasn't like an official thing. It was right. sort of like a, just a principal to yeah. kid thing. But he got them to buy into it. And so all these kids are incredibly well-spoken. But then at the schoolyard, it's totally different. It was awesome. That is awesome. It was awesome. But he, I, I think live there. He, it's not far from where we live. But I think his point is he just wanted to restore some dignity to them. And I found that he was successful in doing that. Yeah. And when you can build somebody up, 
then they're ready. They're yeah. set. Then whatever challenge you give them, they're going to rise to meet it because they know that you think they can. And then they think they can. When yeah. you know they think that they can, then they start thinking, oh, I know how to do right. this. And by the way, I'm not proposing a street classroom dual language program. I'm just saying. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I just, I appreciate the fact that he met the kids where they were and found a way to take the things that people usually condemn them for and turn it into an asset and then build on that to get them to more traditional levels of academic success, which he was able to do. You know, he was a really inspiring guy. That's awesome. Yeah. So one of the things that I hope to do every time I sit down and talk to someone mm -hmm. is give whoever might be listening some little tidbit of, here's what you should do. So in this case, like, what is that thing that everybody who hears what we're saying today mm -hmm. ought to be doing? I, I think that that's a good question. Public education is one of those things that everybody believes works and should be better. And they've also resigned themselves to the fact that they can't fix it. They've kind of given up on it. And I feel like we can't do that. We have to hold all of our policymakers accountable for the state of affairs, whether it's, you know, why does the school look this way on this side of town? And why is there another school on the other side of town that's different? Um, I think a lot of people in certain political parties talk about public education like they care about it, but no one ever comes to us, even me, and says, can you show me? your work, what you're working on that tries to fix this problem. Because it's easy for me to say, you think this, I think this, we agree, vote for me, I'm good. But no one ever says, show me the work you're doing that that demonstrates that you're really doubling down on this. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to hold our folks accountable that way. Accountability does not just come at the ballot box. It's, it should right. be there all the time. I think voting really matters. And I also think that in a very blue and red way, in a purple way, public school finance and property tax reform, they go together. Yeah. It's a great opportunity for coalitions, for people who care almost exclusively about public ed. You're getting underfunded. We need to fix that. The state needs to pick up more of the share. If you feel like your property taxes are out of control and exploding, which they are, especially in the inner city, then one of the reasons why that is is because the state itself was putting less money into the public school system, forcing local property taxpayers to make up the difference. This is an opportunity for a coalition, right? Yeah. And, and I think if we keep pushing on it, we're, we're going to get somewhere, but we have to just be deliberate. And then the last part is, you know, if you, if you have any interaction with the public schools in your neighborhood, go to them and ask them what you can do to help. You know, especially, this is going to sound weird, especially if you're a guy. So one of the things I heard over and over again is there's not a lot, there's not enough men involved in public ed in general, especially, uh, K through five. Right. Uh, or maybe even K through eight. These kids need role models. Um, there's not a lot running around. Yeah. Um, a lot of the educators that they see who are men just coincidentally happen to be coaches. Yeah. Which isn't, you know, you're not covering the the largest group of kids that way. But ask your public schools what you can do to help out. And you'll be surprised. They'll give you a small assignment or a big one, but they appreciate it. And then be ready to do it, right? I mean, go yeah, follow through, please. And then, and then go do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Should we drink our wine now? Yeah, I think we should. All right. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miseducation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.